0: Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, in today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Chris Greer, an appraiser from Calvert Home Mortgages. We talked about how an appraiser's evaluation can be different than a realtor's market analysis. We also talked about low ROI renovations, homes that are difficult to appraise, And features that can negatively impact the value of a property. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Chris, just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Can you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what's keeping you busy these days?
1: Yeah, nice to meet you, Corey. So, my name is Chris Greer. I've been an appraiser in Calgary for the last nine years, lived here for about 20. Just after high school, I moved to Calgary. Prior to that, I was in oil and gas, making industrial computers for drilling and mining companies. I was looking for a change in 2014. Always interested in real estate, so decided to make a change into appraisal. So that's what keeps me busy this day. I have a wife and two young girls, so they also keep me very busy.
0: Awesome. So I used to be in oil and gas as well before getting into real estate. What is like industrial computers? What is that? And what kind of schooling would you have taken? Some sort of engineering?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I did electronics engineering. And so a lot of what we designed were computers that had to go into rugged environments, so had to withstand extreme temperatures, high temps up to plus 40, 50, 60, down to minus 40 in Alberta.
0: Intrinsically safe. Is that the word? Like I remember using that word.
1: Intrinsically safe. What's another word? It's been a long time. <laughs> um, I know the uh, the watertight ratings now, the Apple iPhone has similar watertight ratings to what we used to design to on a much more high-tech product.
0: Interesting. And that's pretty significant switch, I think, going, you know, from that role to an appraiser. So maybe a little bit of a backstory. What got you inspired? Was it a friend or family member? What made you make the switch? And it was in 2014. So was it the changes in oil and gas that kind of spurred that on?
1: Yeah. So I was looking for a change. I was working for a smaller company. And since the financial crash in 2008, our company was struggling with some lost contracts, just You know, a lot of people, a lot of companies got hurt in that financial crash. So we were struggling to recover from that. And then I was just looking for a new career at that time. And a buddy of mine on my ball hockey team was in appraisal and he was looking for help. So it was a scary time to make a change. I had two young girls. I think my oldest was four and my wife had a newborn, but it was time to make a change. So uh, (laughs) I want to say thanks to my wife for supporting me during that time frame because it was stressful for both of us.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's awesome, man. From the appraiser standpoint, maybe most listeners would have an idea of what appraisers do and how they bring value, especially for like an investment type transaction, if you're doing a or that kind of thing. Maybe if you could give just maybe a bit more of a high level, how it's different. So let's say, you know, a client calls me a realtor and they say, oh, Corey, what's my property worth, right? And I look at the comps, that kind of thing. Can you explain maybe some of the nuances and differences? We'll start off at a high level, how an appraiser would be different and analyze that differently than me.
1: So a lot of the methods we use to analyze property may overlap, but I think the rules are definitely different. I think a realtor's goal is to try and get the highest price they can for their client. I mean, there may either be goals selling quickly, highest price. That's more your field. But from an appraiser standpoint, we're tasked with providing an independent opinion of value. So we go through a comprehensive education program and demonstrate a number of years of experience in the field before we can get a designation and be a certified appraiser in the industry. So I can say working in this field for nine years now, some realtors are definitely harder to appraise for when they're selling a house, because they're always pushing the top of that market. And when a realtor is pushing the top of the market, it can be difficult to find comparable sales in the market that will support their sale. I'd say there's a lot of overlap, but different roles for sure.
0: I think you guys, you're looking at Like the bathrooms in more detail. Like we also do comparables, but you're right about just how we're trying to push maybe the envelope, especially in a hot market like we're in today in Calgary. You know, like some neighborhoods are hitting new records, it seems like, right, on sale values. And so I guess in a scenario that we can often see is like in Calgary, now we're getting into bidding wars. So let's say a house is listed at 500, they get, you know, 10 offers and it's the price, it's almost like they're at an auction, the price just keeps getting pushed up. So let's Mm -hmm. say the house, the final sale is 575. The bank then might call in an appraiser. Right. Mm-hmm. So we know that the house is now sold or conditionally sold at 575. But that person that needs a mortgage, the bank is probably going to call you, right? To come in and give actual an evaluation of that property. So that's something the appraiser value may not come back as high. That's correct, right?
1: Yeah. So that's an important distinction between, I guess, our two roles. So generally realtors working for the home buyer and the home seller, whereas an appraiser generally is working for a lender. So we're working for different clients. In a rising market, like you're discussing, a good example would be the market last year in Calgary, January, February, March. Month over month, we were seeing close to maybe passing double digit increases in home values from one month to the next. And generally in the appraisal industry, you're looking for comparable sales that transacted in the last 90 days, even in a growing market. But last year, I had to restrict my searches to sales in the last week or two to find anything that might support where the market was going. And that sometimes is going to mean looking into other neighborhoods that maybe aren't your subject's neighborhood, which is not something you typically want to do as an appraiser. But as the market is changing, you have to sometimes change what is the most important factor to uh, support a current value.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then obviously in a normal market, you would do a 90-day kind of window. You would stay in the same neighborhood. You're going to do apples to apples. So mm-hmm. if you're looking at a bungalow, you're probably not going to be looking at the two stories, right? You're going to look at Correct. what is sailed in a bungalow, what is sold. And then I guess as a basic example, does it have a garage? You're going to look at those details, basement finish, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to make adjustments based on the differences and what's sold to come up with the value of the property that you're giving the appraisal on. Correct. And and there's a way that you do the adjustment. It almost seems inverse to me at times, but can you kind of go through that, how you would go through an adjustment?
1: Yeah, so generally when you're looking for comps in a market, you want to find sales that are as close to your subject as possible, the subject being the property you're appraising. Now, that's not always possible. Homes are different, they have different features. People renovate, people add features. Homes may be backing, maybe on busy streets versus quiet streets. So you're always trying to deal with what the market is presenting you and work with that. So adjustments are made by analyzing sales in the marketplace. Uh, It's one method. So you're looking at maybe you can grab two sales off the market that sold within a week of each other. And one has a garage and one doesn't. Let's say for the case of this exercise that everything else is identical. Never happens, but let's just say it's true. The difference in value in those two properties should theoretically be the garage and that's where you're going to abstract the value of a garage from the marketplace. Now doing that with just two sales is less reliable than say doing it with five sales of each because then you get consistency in the market and you get a range of maybe a garage is worth 20 to 30,000 but on average it's worth 25.
0: Yeah, yeah. I see. So 3 would probably be your minimum that you hope for and is 5 kind of the sweet spot that you're looking for?
1: You work with the best data you have. So we're all constrained by time. So an individual appraisal, generally, the industry is looking for a minimum of three comparable sales to justify a value. But if I was doing a study where I'm looking to abstract from the market what a feature or an influence on a property is valued by the market, I'll try and find as many data points as I can. I think uh, generally in statistics, you want to have 10 to 20 to get a reliable number, but work with the best data you have and the time you have.
0: (laughs) Well, that would be difficult. Then then you have to do some sort of time adjustments, right? If you're going to go that far out.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Because you're not going to find probably enough sales in a week to do that analysis. So you're going to be going farther back in time. And if it's not a stable market, like you say, you're going to do time adjustments. So the more you manipulate the data, the less reliable it's going to become. So it's balance, uh, working with a number of competing factors.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And can you explain kind of your role at Calvert? I guess you wouldn't be working for the big banks then, right? So you'd have an investment, maybe a property flipper, someone doing a Burr, and you're going to obviously be doing these appraisals for Calvert, right? So can you kind of explain how that plays out and what type of investors you're typically doing appraisals on?
1: Yeah. So coming to Calvert was a big decision for me. I'll just start off there because uh, it's a big change from fee appraising, working for multiple lenders. A lot of what we do at Calvert is, well, all of what we do is short-term lending. So that's going to be flips and burrs for the majority. So we're looking at clients, real estate investors that are purchasing properties that are maybe run down, maybe a bit older, and they're going to be renovating those. So we're valuing the after renovated condition. So what the property is going to look like when they finish the renovation. And I did this uh, as a fee appraiser as well. It's called an as-if complete value versus an as-is value. So you do it for new construction, you do it for clients that are looking to renovate their own home and maybe want to get a draw mortgage or you know get a HELOC to access that equity and complete a reno.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have to kind of rein people's numbers in a fair bit? Do you find people are maybe a bit more optimistic than they should be, like with their projections?
1: They can be, yeah. But I found it's both ways. Some clients undervalue what they're going to bring to the market and some of them overvalue. A lot of it depends on the client's experience, if they're new to this industry, if they're new to flipping houses, or if they've been doing it for a number of years. So yeah, sometimes they'll have a higher opinion of value than we will. And sometimes we learn, like a lot of times we will learn from our clients as well, because they're experts in the field as well. As an appraiser, I have a wealth of experience in this industry, but I definitely do not know everything about every neighborhood and every type of house and every trend at every moment in time. So always looking to learn from our clients and our team to get the correct value.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then what type of things you find is maybe if you can share some items that are good on the ROI and also talk about some things that you would say, maybe stay clear of if you're doing, say, a burr strategy or doing a flip. Smart places to spend your money and smart places not to.
1: So everyone wants a concrete answer on this type of question all the time. <laughs> yeah. But as with everything, it's kind of nuanced. Like uh, my guidance on that would be know your market and use your team. So, like your realtor is a member of your team as a real estate investor, your mortgage broker, your lender, even. So, look for the trends in the neighborhood where you are purchasing a property to flip or burr. Maybe in a higher value neighborhood, say like Palliser, like Bonavista, you can put in higher quality finishes and like put in a higher value reno and get a higher return. Your risk may be a little bit higher, but your potential for profit will be higher as well. In a lower value neighborhood, you may not want to put in as high quality materials, maybe materials that have a longer lifespan. Thinking about burrs, if you're looking to rent a property, you're going to want to go towards like features and finishes that are going to last a little longer.
0: Okay. So you match basically what the market is going to bear, right? So don't over-renovate in a neighborhood that you know, you're just not going to get the ROI.
1: Like, know your own experience as well, right? If it feels a little too risky for you, maybe you're taking on a little too much in your flip plan. Maybe you want to get more aggressive with your high end finishes in your next flip, right? Just know your capabilities as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then, so areas that say, let's, you mentioned the busy street. So, let's say it's close to a cemetery or some power lines, that kind of thing. How much do you find that that would affect the property value?
1: Adverse influences will vary how they affect the market value of a property. Generally, if a property is on a busy street, say like a drive or a boulevard, I see that affect the value, negatively affect the value somewhere around 5%. So for a $500,000 house, that's gonna be about 25,000. And that will vary. There's a range of how that will affect the property value. Like some boulevards and drives have four lanes, some have a divider in the middle, right? There's gonna be a variance in there in how it affects the property value. Another example for that is it appears to affect the properties that have front attached garages most because you're backing into and driving into that busy street all the time. But if you have a rear attached garage and you're on one of those busy streets, it affects the value a little less because you're not always driving into that busy street. You still have the traffic noise, still have more traffic going by your house all the time. So there's still a negative influence, but, but yeah, it can vary based on the extent of that influence
0: yeah, that makes sense. And how about in Calgary? So what about direction? So if yard faces north, say versus south, are you going to put some sort of value on that?
1: I have not seen a difference in value for that specifically, just with north and south facing yards. Like views based on which way the yard is facing will have an effect on value. But uh, it seems like there's different segments of the market that prefer yards facing each direction, and it seems to balance out and not have an effect on value. I'd be curious with your feedback as well on that one.
0: So in Calgary, typically a south or a west facing is more sought after, but as Mm -hmm. to what is that worth? I'm not sure either, unless the comps can show it, right? But uh, if you're a newer buyer and you haven't had a property before and you haven't experienced different direction of a yard, it may not bother you, but once you've lived in multiple properties and you see what you know summer feels like in a South or a West backyard, it might make it more important to you, right? In Calgary mm-hmm. anyway.
1: Yeah, and again, like, so that's different segments of the market, right? The younger buyers will not reflect that in the pricing they pay, but the older buyers might. So it kind of balances out.
0: That makes sense, yeah, for sure. And uh, what about if you're looking at a property, and this is a common thing for our investors, is they'll look for a property that has an illegal suite, and generally there's equity lift would you go to the city and you get it recognized by the city and you go through the steps and you legalize it. So as an appraiser, what kind of value? Now, we're just talking kind of like that five $600,000 property, like now we're not north of a million or anything. What type of lift would you say something like that would you?
1: So over my appraisal career, the city of Calgary has made a push to legalize secondary suites. I think it was about four or five years ago when they started that with their registry. During that transition. I saw a number of flip properties make, I would say, six-digit profit margin on having legal suites. But I've seen that disappear in the last few years. It's much more related to the cost to get the permit and put in the drywall, the extra furnace or um, air mover. Just the required features on the property is where I see the value difference coming now. So depending on how nicely you integrate that suite, I've seen range from ten to thirty thousand for that, making a suite legal when it was previously illegal.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What are some common misconceptions when it comes to you know doing an evaluation on a property?
1: A big one I used to hear as a fee appraiser going out and viewing people's homes was that my neighbor's house sold for six hundred and mine has a bigger deck, so mine should be worth more. But what the general public doesn't always realize is that. Maybe your neighbor's house looks like it's the same size as yours, but when you go into the records and see that the neighbor's house is 400 square feet bigger than yours, so it has a higher value. I see that a lot. I think homeowners, I mean, our homes are important to us. It's like the biggest purchase anybody makes in their lifetime. We tend to think that the features we enjoy and value highly are the features that everybody values highly and enjoys. Which isn't always the case. So, you know, a fireplace may be very important to one buyer, but it might not be to another buyer.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. Actually, circling back to the garage example, we know with labor shortage, inflation. So, the number in my head when I walk around with clients, say a year ago, I don't see a detached garage. So you can put one in, maybe 25,000, 30,000. And now I'm hearing numbers like 40,000 to get a garage built to detach. So as an appraiser, how do you guys kind of keep on track to what kind of lift on the ARB for some of these items?
1: It's challenging, especially in the last couple of years with inflation and especially the changes, all utility and concrete and lumber prices. They've been going up and down consistently over the last couple of years. So it's hard to pin that down. We'll try and abstract it from the market. We'll look at what contractors are charging, what builders are charging for a garage. And again, it's key to get as much data as you can, because one builder may be charging 40 grand for a garage, but another one might be charging 25 still. And I mean, they all have their own pricing structures where you know they may have purchased materials a year ago. So they're still working on that pricing structure. So it's good to get a range of data from the market. The highest price is not going to be the market value and the lowest price likely is not the market value. It's usually somewhere in between.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then let's say I'm someone who's doing a birth strategy or flip and I bring my plan to you guys Mm -hmm. and it's an older property from 50s and I have this plan, okay, I'm going to put a new kitchen in, new bathrooms and this is going to be my level of finishes and then you give me the ARV. But how are things maybe a little bit more abstract or unknown, kind of captured? Like if the sewer line needed to be replaced or the age of the roof is, you know, the shingles are starting to curl now. Like how do you guys kind of evaluate that and maybe kind of keep that as in play?
1: So, yeah. So typically, flips, real estate investors are looking at the interior finish generally on a flip. But I have found that your systems and other items that aren't as flashy, like the roof, the furnace, maybe electrical or plumbing lines also will add value to a flip again this comes back to knowing your neighborhood and knowing your when your property was built as well so a 1950s house is going to have two by four walls and current construction standards is two by six so your insulation rating is just going to be lower by default on that older property So potentially strapping out those walls, adding insulation may add value in your neighborhood. Houses built in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of them had aluminum wiring. So that's something that say in like Bonavista, for example, if you don't replace that when you're doing a flip, it can really hold back the value potential on the property.
0: Poly B would be another one, right? You see someone do a renovation and they left the Poly B, it makes no sense to me.
1: Yep. Yeah. Especially if you're Taking out that drywall, replace that uh, poly B because it'll definitely hold back your value.
0: That would be a recommendation you guys would make then if you were looking at something, say, from 78 to 98?
1: Yeah, so the valuation team, when we get a request for evaluation from the underwriters, we'll get the renovation plan. And that's where geographical competency comes into appraisal, is knowing your market, knowing where you're working, and knowing that in maybe where that property is located, its neighborhood it has some potential issues and we'll review the client's rental plan for resolving those issues. And if it's not in there, sometimes we'll deal with it up front and ask the client about it. Sometimes we'll provide our estimated market value on what their rental plan is and then provide some feedback on how they could potentially improve their rental plan and potentially achieve a higher um, after renovation value.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then what about an area that has a kind of a known high water table, that kind of stuff?
1: Like flood fringe zones?
0: Yes, exactly. Something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we'll look for those as well, generally, in whatever market we're operating in. We try to understand where there's potential for flooding and make recommendations accordingly as well. A key thing to remember, I think, with adverse influences on where be location or property features is they may look like red flags, but they just detract from the value. So there's always potential for value to be made on a property located anywhere, as long as you're paying the right price for the property as is and putting in the right renovation, there's always potential to make profit on a flip.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And now, let's say I'm a listener and I've got a house I'm gonna sell. And in my mind, I think, oh, why don't I develop my basement before I sell it? Because surely that's gonna give me equity gain. What do you typically see on a return on investment? Like just saying standard finishes, standard neighborhood, would you advise against that? Or would you say, yeah, go for it and you're gonna get your money back?
1: Um, so developing a basement to sell would be soft because it would depend on the trend in the neighborhood. A problem you can get yourself into with developing your basement before you sell is if your house is about 20 years old and maybe your finishes on your first or second level are original and now you have a new basement downstairs. Are you going to get the full return for that new basement because your first and second level are 20 years old? Potentially. Potentially but i think generally your properties are viewed in totality so that older finishes on the first and second level are likely going to drag down your return on that newer basement i would say yeah
0: yeah generally the number i always think is just like 78 or 80% is your roi like you know develop it if you are going to use it and enjoy it and the family is going to mm-hmm. use it but to just do it to sell it generally i mean there's always the exceptions to that but Generally, because I mean, someone could go down and say, "Well, you put carpet in. I wanted vinyl plank. You went with this color. I prefer this color." And it just never seems to be. It's not like you're getting back 1.25 percent or something. It's going to be generally less than what you actually put into it, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Advice for homeowners versus real estate investors is very different. Um, (laughs) I've given I've given that advice to homeowners in the past before. Like, if you want to be most efficient, I'll give them advice: put in this level of finish. But you are going to live in this house, so there is value in use there's value to you. So if you want something flashier, if you want nicer granite countertops, or you want to put a little more money into a wet bar than maybe everyone else is in the neighborhood, I mean, you're going to use that. So you're going to get value out of it. It's not only financial return you should be considering for a homeowner.
0: Yeah, exactly. We talked about time adjustment. Maybe could you just kind of provide a little bit more information on that? How you as an appraiser, let's say you're looking at a neighborhood and it doesn't have good comps in the last 90 days. So you're going to have to now extend further out, especially, I mean, Calgary, generally we have enough turnover, maybe not lately, but if you were in like a more remote area, how are you going to do some time adjustments?
1: So generally the way I do time adjustments, and I think I shouldn't generalize for other appraisers actually, but uh, the way I do time adjustments is using CREA HPI index. So that's a tool that CREA implemented in 2012, I believe is when it came out. And what they're attempting to do there is define what a typical house is in your neighborhood and track how prices change year to year, month to month based on that typical house. So I found it to be a very accurate tool for predicting where prices have gone. If I'm looking at a comp that's a year old and say a house sold a year ago and it's sold again now and no other changes to the house in that one year span. If I go back and use the Korea HBI index For that neighborhood and property category, to make an adjustment on its 2022 sale, it has consistently come out pretty close to current value.
0: Is it multiplying by a percentage then, based on the month and the year? Is that what it's doing?
1: Yeah. So the benchmark value, say it was five hundred thousand a year ago for that neighborhood, and then now it's five sixty. So that's a ten thousand dollar increase on five fifty. I'm talking about math I can't do in my head, but yeah, it's a percentage increase year over year.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Based on what the market was doing at that time, basically comparing it to where it is today, right?
1: Yeah. And so what that index does is it tracks, like I said, a benchmark house. So the further you get away from what Korea defines as a benchmark house for your neighborhood, the less reliable that tool becomes for completing a time adjustment on that house. So maybe the benchmark in the neighborhood is a bungalow, a thousand square feet, three bedrooms, two baths but your house is 1500 square feet, four bedrooms, three baths. So the Korea HPI index will be less accurate time adjusting that house just because it's significantly different from what the benchmark is.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I wanna just talk about maybe carriage houses and generally from a real estate investment standpoint, it's actually better to look for a property that's selling that already has the carriage house built because the equity increase is not enough. So let's say it costs you 250 to 300,000 to build that carriage house in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And then you have maybe a five, six hundred thousand dollar house in the front. Generally, it's only going to give you a lift of maybe one hundred and fifty to one hundred seventy-five in that range, maybe two hundred if you're lucky. But then there's a loss there, right? So like if you were the person that spent the five, six hundred on the front house, the three hundred on the back house. You don't get that back generally in Calgary. Is that what you have found? And how would you kind of crunch those numbers for carriage houses?
1: I haven't seen a lot of carriage houses lately in my career, but a few years ago, I did seem to abstract from the market that they are valued close to their cost to build. Like a couple of keys there is you have to make sure you're taking out the cost of the garage because there's a garage that you're generally building them on top of. So that's not technically part of the carriage house cost to build, right? Right that's a different utility. And then the return on value for those is generally closer to downtown areas where you're going to have higher demand for that rental property, because usually they're built to rent out. Some homeowners will use them for you know, parents or, or a, a child in college, things like that. But generally they're built for income.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then, so the, actually what I find interesting is generally like in the past, so if you were an appraiser for say, the big banks representing them, you would show up you actually walk through the property, you're taking notes and you're looking at some of the finishes and the condition, that kind of thing, right? Because you're looking at a product that's there, it's completed, but now as an appraiser, you're kind of looking at something in the future. Do you also go back as well and look at a final product to do another appraisal, or is it generally always like kind of future appraisals?
1: So the way we operate here as real estate analysts is a little different than fee appraising because we don't generally go out and view properties anymore. We're working from what generally is called like a desktop Appraisal method where we're just looking at the property remotely. So we ask the client for as many photos as we can get of the property as is, if it's not listed on MLS. Generally, we're going to want a detailed rental plan. Ideally, we can get the client to provide examples of previous flip work. So what their work looks like. For some clients, we'll go out and view their work just to get a good idea of what their quality of work is, what type of finishes they put in these properties. But generally, you want to try and gather as much information as you can. So visiting a property is one way to gather that information. It has a lot of benefits, but it's not the only way to gather information, especially in 2023. (laughs) You can do everything online, especially as we learned uh, two, three years ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. What would you consider like a low ROI renovation? Is there anything you can share that you've seen?
1: Yeah, sometimes I've seen clients wanting to replace features that maybe were renovated recently in a property they're purchasing. So there's still value in that feature. And maybe it shouldn't be torn out and replaced. They're just not going to get the same ROI, like tearing out granite countertops for a different kind of granite countertops that they like better. That's advice that I used to give to homeowners a lot is don't tear out granite or quartz if you're looking for a return on that investment, because you're really just replacing value with value. And you may like it better. And that comes back to that value in use. If the client Is going to use that and enjoy it more. Then there's value. But from a financial standpoint, replacing features that already have value in the marketplace will not give you a good return.
0: Conversely, what would be some good renovations? Some good things that you see that maybe give the
1: most lift? Knowing your market, so pushing that edge. So maybe in a neighborhood, a neighboring property has been like a real estate investor put two hundred thousand into a renovation. You know they're putting in luxury vinyl plank, which is a popular item right now, putting in you know a white or gray quartz counter, white cabinet. So if you can push that envelope and maybe you can put 150000 into your reno and achieve an almost similar look to a $200,000 reno, there's an area where you can push out another $50,000 in profit. So maybe that means putting in luxury vinyl plank that's $10 a square foot versus 12 And just making decisions like that across the board can push up the profit you're able to make on a flip.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then what if you're dealing with, say, like we got a bungalow that's 1,200 square feet, you got a bi-level, and you've got maybe a four-level split. How are you as an appraiser going to maybe put more value on one over the other?
1: That's a tough question. In an aggregate, I don't see a difference in value for those property types generally. For one-story properties, the trend I've seen in Calgary generally is if they're less than 1,200 square feet, especially inner city. Those are properties that either maybe you want to put an addition on or something that's a candidate for a teardown and infills in the inner city. If they're 1200 square feet or over, that provides enough living space for today's general market where you can have two bedrooms, two baths on that first level, which seems to be the minimum standard. Anything less than 1200 square feet, it gets a little hard to put that number of rooms into a property.
0: For sure. And it, it all obviously depends too on the owner and their purpose. If it's going to be rental versus I'm going to live in this property, I would like an ensuite, that kind of thing. And you're right about that square footage of 1,200 for sure.
1: Yeah. And I mean, varies by the neighborhood as well, right? Maybe that 1,200 goes down closer to 1,000 in lower price points and goes higher if you're getting into a higher price point up to a million.
0: Yeah. And I've seen floor plan. It's amazing. Like, you know, say a 1,050 square foot bungalow, I've seen floor plans that really have maximized the space. And I've also seen really poor, unaffected floor plans where it's like, oh, you could actually had another bedroom where you just kind of, you know, the layout was really done very poorly.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we actually, there was a client recently, they were renovating a bungalow and the property had had an addition sometime in like the nineties, I can't remember exactly, but so it had a bit of a unique layout. And because of that, it had two and a half baths, which would have been unusual for the age of the property. And the client's rental plan was going to leave the bathrooms as is, which would have been unique for the market, where generally in the neighborhood there would be two bedrooms on the first level and two bathrooms. Because of the size, I think it was going to be three bedrooms and they were going to leave two and a half baths. And we suggested in that case to change that half bath to just another full bath rather than just leave it as is.
0: Yeah, and- for sure. You're right about like also too, I've seen this with the flippers and people I work with where like say if you're in a community lake view. And if the current condition is not too bad on the property, they will add the square footage. Maybe they take the carport or something, mm-hmm. or they just build a, you know, a full other 400 square foot addition onto that property. But if you're in a very sought after kind of higher price point community, that's when adding that square footage seems to be more important.
1: Yeah, and that's where you'll get the return on adding that square footage. You may not get it in a lower price point neighborhood, like in the, the $400,000 to $500,000 range.
0: For sure. What would you consider a difficult property to do an appraisal on?
1: So, you mentioned cemeteries earlier. Properties back in cemeteries are tough because there's not a lot of cemeteries in a city generally. So, you're not going to have a lot of comparables. So, it's hard to extract what that negative influence is on the property. Even properties that are near cemeteries and where maybe you have to drive by the cemetery every day to get to and from your house, you may see an influence on the value. So, those are tough properties that are unique for the neighborhood if the neighborhood is primarily bungalows and then there's a two story in the neighborhood, those are tough because you are not gonna find comps to compare to those in your neighborhood. So you're generally gonna be pushed into comparing them to one stories or looking out into neighboring communities to see if there's any two stories or going back further in time, making time adjustments. All actions and appraisal that are generally gonna lower the reliability of your comp data. So you just become less confident in that final value that uh, your comps are indicating.
0: So I think Calgary, busy roads, I think, used to have a bit more of an effect on houses changing hands and selling, but lately, because of the low inventory, the market demand, it seems like almost anything right now is selling.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you kind of take that into account as well when you're doing appraisals?
1: Yeah, so generally, we'll have an idea like for busy road, your default may be to make an adjustment on that because of what your experience, what you've done in the past and what seems to have been supported by the market, but like a step that every appraiser should go through when they're concluding a value is looking at all the data again, does this adjustment that I'm making today and that I've made in the past still make sense with the market data that I have right now. And I have seen adjustments for features change over time, even the percent. So dollar value definitely changed because the value of a feature will change as values go up and down, but even that percentage will change over time as well.
0: Yeah, and then what about if you had a, both or two stories, one has a walkout, one doesn't have a walkout, all things being the same, how much of a lift would you typically give to a walkout?
1: So it depends on what the walkout looks like. Some walkouts have that full level backyard, where the full rear of the house is sided and you have large windows, large patio door on that basement level. Some of them will have a bit of a slope topography where maybe only half of your rear yard has a walkout. So you don't really have any bigger windows on the back, but you still have that big patio door. So a full walkout will be anywhere from 15 to 20,000 generally. I found it's Highly related to the cost because you have that siding, you have the extra windows, you have the bigger patio door. Then there's other types of walkout that I see listed on MLS listings all the time. But um, I'd call them maybe more walk-ups where maybe your basement at the rear of your house is still below grade, but you've dug out, say, 100 square feet and poured a patio with some steps up to grade. Generally, I'll call that a forced walkout. So you have a little less value for the walkout. There's still going to be value for that patio. And then you'll have, you'll see the Big common trend now in two-story houses is to have your stairs to the basement or on the side of the house, and you put that door on the side as well, which can be used for like a secondary suite in the basement. Still provides that separation.
0: I like that design. I think it's quite smart. Oh. We're seeing that in a lot of newer subdivisions right now with the developers and builders. Yeah.
1: It's super efficient. Yeah. It's yeah. really low cost for the builders to put in as well.
0: For sure. Yeah. And just exactly. It's yeah. I think it's fantastic. Well, we're getting to the end here, so uh, I'm just gonna hit you with just maybe a few quick answer, more personal type questions, finish off the show. So what is a favorite hobby or interest that you have outside of doing appraisals?
1: I think I mentioned this earlier. So I, I play ball hockey regularly. I used to play semi-competitively. I'm getting a little older now, so a little less competitively these days.
0: <laughs> and how about uh, getting any trips planned for this year, for 2023?
1: I think uh, nothing huge with interest rates rising, feeling the pinch like a lot of people are. So I don't think we're taking any big trips, but I got a couple of weeks off in the summer. I think we're gonna go visit some friends in BC, maybe just spend some time in the, in the BC weather.
0: Nice. Hopefully it won't be smoky. Right. Yeah. Where's somewhere you'd like to travel you've never been?
1: Um, I love to travel. So it'll probably be a lot of choices. I know my wife would love to go to Thailand. We'd love to travel through Europe. Hawaii is a favorite location of ours. So always love to go back there. Yeah. Can't beat uh, 25 to 30 every day. <laughs>
0: exactly. Thanks again, Chris, for being on the show. And just there'll be links in the show notes, but what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you?
1: So you can reach me at uh, Calvert. My number's 403-278-0249. That's our direct front office line. And then my extension is 141. You can reach me at, Chris at uh, chmic.ca. If you want to speak to any of our underwriters, our senior underwriters are Rob, Garrett, and Sherwin, and they can be accessed through that direct line I gave as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Corey. My pleasure.
0: Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckport. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is coreypeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks.